Hello, my name is Anthony, and this is my podcast, Theologizing Life, where we will talk about how what we think about God shapes the lives we live. Hello, welcome to Theologizing Life, where we talk about how what we think about God shapes the lives we live. Today, Matt Tracy is joining us. Hi, Matt. Hi. Um, thank you for joining us. Uh, one of the questions I always like to ask, it's, it's almost become maybe a catchphrase at, at this point, is um, for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, who is Matt in a nutshell? Um, Matt in a nutshell. That's a complicated question. Um, so I am a youth pastor at Pathway Church in Warsaw, Indiana. I've been working here for four years. Um, I have a degree in youth ministry from Huntington University, and I got my Master's of Divinity from Grace Seminary in Winona Lake, Indiana. Um, so I love school. I love, I'm a nerd. I like writing. I like researching. I like reading. Um, and I like to um, just kind of expand my knowledge in theology and different topics and stuff like that. Um, so podcasts like this are kind of you know, I, I love this kind of stuff. So I have a daughter named April. She's one, um, one and a half. And my wife, uh, her name is Elisa. And uh, yeah, we have lived here in Indiana for the past four years. We got married in 2017. Um, so yeah, we're, we really like it. And we're really, really enjoying our, our time here. So. Yeah, it's been uh, good. Our families have been friends for a couple of years now, and then we worked together for a little yeah. while. Uh, and it's also just been fun. Matt and I share a similar love for uh, biblical, theological scholarship and discussions and, and things. And, uh, and Matt is a gentleman and a scholar. And uh, I think it's okay to, to share. You are on, on a path to pursue a doctoral degree correct right i uh only didn't share that because it's not i haven't applied yet so it's it's still a you know a work in progress but i'm hoping to go in that direction and get a phd um and i want to go into the teaching kind of realm the higher education uh, side of things that kind of that is as ministry as well it's not local church ministry but um, that's kind of where I feel called and led and yeah, something that I'm really passionate about. So, uh, some of my professors, um, in my undergrad played a significant role in, in my academic, but also my spiritual development. It, it is uh, a ministry. Well, it's exciting. Um, and I'm, I'm excited for you. Uh, so the topic we're going to kind of talk about today, and, uh, it should be stated that none of us are probably experts on this topic. Uh, because it's a topic that we're living in and we don't have the, the hindsight yet. Um, but we're going to talk a little bit about like what, it, what, what might the local church look like in a post-pandemic world. Um, it's been over a year, almost a year and a half, since the U.S. was first affected by the novel coronavirus that thrust the world into a global pandemic. Um, before we get into some of this stuff about the local church, could you just share a little bit personally uh, how that initially impacted you if 
if you remember, if you didn't block that from your, your memory, um, <laughs> how, what, what impact did it initially have on you? And then maybe share how did it initially affect the church and ministry? Well, first of all, I want to point out that doing this over Zoom, having this conversation over Zoom is kind of PTSD for me. I haven't had a Zoom meeting in a really <laughs> long time. Um, but when when the lockdowns and the restrictions were kind of first implement, implemented, I bounced back and forth between like fear and skepticism. So I didn't know what to believe. Like no one really knew what to believe at first. And so I was willing to kind of listen to the health authorities and the CDC and the WHO um, and learn what I could do what I could to be a, you know, a team player and, you know, remember 14 days to stop the curve or whatever. And here we, <laughs> yeah. here we are in, you know, July, 2021. Um, it, it, it didn't take 14 days. Um, that was kind of a ridiculous expectation in hindsight, but uh, as the restrictions and the lockdowns and stuff wore on, I kind of grew a little bit bitter. Um, I just had my daughter, my first kid, and my parents and my in-laws couldn't visit her for you know the first couple months of her life <laughs> um, because of the travel restrictions. They lived in different states, and they, they just couldn't. And with their jobs and the restrictions their jobs had, they just couldn't get out here and we couldn't go and visit them. So that was really, really hard. And I got really sick of, you know, virtual meetings and not being able to go into the office and, you know, the commercials and the media, it seemed like they were kind of just exploiting this thing and, you know, capitalizing on the fear and the uncertainty where we're all feeling. Um, so, I ended up with this like weird mixture of emotions on one hand, I'm willing to play ball and, and do what I can to get this under control and get back to normal life. And on the other hand, I'm kind of asking myself like how necessary is all of this. And to be honest, you know, I, I still wrestle with those same mixed feelings Um and that's kind of where I'm at today. We're, we're not out of the woods here. They're, they're still talking about, you know, COVID might, you know, come back and get vaccinated and all that stuff. And, and I'm still kind of wrestling with those feelings. And, um, but yeah, that's kind of where, where I'm at, what, how it affected me personally. So. Yeah. I remember I was at a conference, um, with the, like our church's denomination put on a regional conference and, you know, I was with a, you know, a group of people for that. And the last day they were packing up and one of the guys, um, a pastor in the district I knew taught was talking about March madness was being canceled. And like, um, I hadn't been in the news paying attention much to the coronavirus. Um, and I was like, what, that's crazy. And I thought, no way, like, it's not gonna, like, it's not going to be a big deal. And that first Sunday, um, the week we got back was our first Sunday, not meeting in person. And then um, it got a little, I think it got a little scary uh, for me. And part of, part of the fear, I won't go into detail here full, like a ton, but um, there was some sickness that went through our home. And then a particular uh, group of symptoms that Titus was experiencing that were weird um, didn't, um, it wasn't the coronavirus, uh, but it just, 
in the midst of that unknown and then there actual actually being illness in our household, it was it was a very just anxiety induced time. We kind of already alluded to some of the ways like it affected ministry and church there at the beginning. Um, you know, mentioning we didn't have our uh, service uh, in person and meetings were on Zoom. But I mean, maybe uh, you could sketch out more specifically, like early on, how did it affect church and ministry? Well, we had to scramble to adjust. Um, you know, as someone who gets paid by the church and that salary kind of depends on people attending and giving, it was kind of another level of anxiety yeah. for me. I know a lot of people had, I was fortunate enough to keep my job through all this. Um, mm-hmm. I know there are a lot of people that were, weren't as fortunate and, and lost their jobs, but um, that was added to the pressure a little bit, um, which is not necessarily a good thing to kind of adjust and try to do some semblance of gathering over you know, Zoom or Skype. I don't even think anyone uses Skype anymore. Uh, but you know, Google Meet, that kind of thing. So we couldn't couldn't meet uh, for Sunday services, obviously. But we had so we had to kind of do a record the sermon, record the music, um, do all these you know different separate recordings. And our worship pastor had to stitch them all together into one you know Sunday morning service. Uh, so I say that with air quotes um, that we posted on YouTube for people to watch. And that was just kind of what we had to roll with because we didn't think it was going to be a long-term thing. None of us in our minds thought we'd be a year and a half into this thing and, and still not out of the woods necessarily. So youth group was, it was the same way and, and kids were on zoom all day for school. So that was even more difficult. I didn't feel right. And they didn't really want to, you know, go to another zoom youth group, but I knew youth pastors who tried to do like their same events. They, they, I knew a youth pastor who tried to do an all nighter over zoom. I have no idea how that went, but that's kind of crazy to me, but that's crazy, (laughs) but it was just a, a mad scramble to, to adjust. And it was a time when pastors needed a lot of grace and not everyone knew or understood that. So, yeah. Um, I want to be careful not to, you know, uh, commiserate too much together, but there, it, it was very challenging on the decision front on our part. And, um, people were pretty opinionated about whatever decision we did or did not make. Um, which I mean, kind of segues, segues into the next question. Um, there were a lot of different approaches for how people responded to COVID. A lot of different ways. I mean, early on, we were kind of forced to have one approach, like not meeting in person the um, stay at home. But then as that was lifted and people tried to figure out like what regathering might look like with safety protocols in place, they were still even then um, kind of early 20 summer, 2020. So there were a lot of different approaches uh, to how to respond to COVID. 
And without demonizing one view over another, um, would you just share maybe at least from your heart and where you're coming from, what were some of the kingdom principles that guided the decisions you made or the approaches uh, that you, you took, how you responded to COVID? So the, the biggest you know, principle for me, and I, I keep going back to this one um, because I think it's so relevant to the discussion is the, the principle that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 8, the issue with the, the meat sacrifice to idols. You know, in, in Corinth, there are a number of pagan temples and these worshipers, these pagan worshipers would bring animal sacrifices to the temple and then they would you know, do their thing. And after the animal was killed and the sacrifice and the ceremony was over, it would be sent to the marketplace to be sold as food. And there were a number of Christians in the church who, you know, thought this is meat sacrificed to a God that doesn't exist. It's just meat. It's fine for us to buy it and eat it. And then there was another group of Christians in the church who, uh, you know, they might've been, they're probably converted Jews who had, you know, deep connections to like the food laws and that kind of thing. And they were deeply, deeply offended when they saw their, you know, fellow Christians eating this meat because they thought it was tainted. They thought it was unclean. They thought they were, you know, dishonoring and sinning against God when they ate it. And so Paul stepped in and he addressed the first camp, uh, those who were okay with buying and eating the meat. And he said, look, um, you and I both know that it's just meat. It's not sinful. Like we have every right to eat it under the law of Christ. Like Jesus has made food clean. Um, but there are people in the church, people that Jesus, you know, also died for who are deeply offended by you doing this, by you practicing this, this rites, this eating this meat. And so Paul warns these people. Uh, he says, don't let your, the exercise of your rights be a stumbling block. So in other words, just because you're justified or you think you're justified in believing the way you do and behaving the way you do doesn't mean that it's okay to cause a brother in Christ to stumble. Um, and actually he says, when you're doing this, you're sinning against your brother and sister and you're grieving the Holy spirit. And to apply this to COVID, I think it's, it, it fits well because there are people who think that, you know, the coronavirus is overblown, that being, we're being manipulated, we're being strung along by the government, that, you know, the masks and the social distancing were totally unnecessary, that our rights are being taken away. And yeah, at the end of the day, the, the virus has a 99% chance of survival. You know, it's at the end of the day, it's, it's a big deal, but it's not they're, they're maybe justified in thinking that we're a little bit, you know, overblown. But on the other hand, there's an entire, entirely different uh, population of people who has been affected or has the potential to be affected very seriously by this disease. And, you know, there are older people I know who didn't leave their homes for, for weeks or months at a time during the peak of the pandemic because they didn't trust other people to be looking out for them. And that's, you know, that's really sad. They, they didn't trust that people would take their needs into consideration. So me, you know, I'm a young person. I don't have health problems. I have a very, very good chance of surviving COVID if, you know, 
if I get it, I don't know if I have gotten it, but you know, I was never afraid of getting it. And there were times when I just wanted to say, you know, forget it and, and live my life. I didn't like wearing the mask everywhere. I didn't like staying home. It was uncomfortable and inconvenient for me, but, but I did those things because I wanted to show that I was looking out for my brothers and sisters in Christ who believe differently than I did. And I didn't want to cause them to stumble. I didn't want to sin against them. Um, and at the end of the day, Jesus calls us to see other people as more significant than ourselves. Um, their needs more significant than our own. And that does not involve fighting for your individual rights or, you know, flaunting your freedoms and your different opinions in people's faces. So. Yeah. Um, well, I happen to agree with you. There's probably some who, who would not, for me, a heart change happened. I didn't like the idea of the mask and, there was a period before there was a mask mandate in Indiana where certain businesses were already requiring it and people were kind of upset about it and I didn't like it and I didn't want us to have a mask mandate. To be honest, like looking back, my reasons were kind of vain. Like I thought they looked stupid. I mean, they, like honest, I, I'm just being honest. Like I thought they looked dumb and that was the primary reason I didn't really want to wear one uh, was because of, of looks, right? Um, but then I was making phone calls to some people in our church and I talked to a couple of people who were like in their seventies, I think, and more than one from our community. This is the other thing. I think sometimes when you recognize this, they are part of our community. They're part of our church, they're part of our church family. And more than, more than one articulated um, basically the same idea that they felt people being unwilling to wear a mask did not show care and concern and compassion for them. And at that moment, the arguments of whether they were effective, um, whether they made a difference, whether it was government overreach or not, like none of that mattered anymore because someone who is part of my community had explicitly said it showed care and concern and compassion for them. Um, that for me was the end of the, there was no longer any debate yeah. um, for me. It's like, it's like, it was a very clear, like, this is a way that a simple way that you can visibly show that you care for me. And, you know, the conversation stops there. Like it's not yeah. that big of an ask <laughs> for something that it, it means a lot to people. So. So what things now we're kind of in a different place. Um, we can kind of look back with a little bit of hindsight on this. What, what things did COVID force the local church to reevaluate and change that probably needed to change? Like this, this probably should have been evaluated a long time ago, but then also what things did COVID affect that need to be revitalized rather than just scrapped, like rather than just thrown out. So um, what are your thoughts on that? I'm trying to say that. I want to say this carefully. I, I think the, the pandemic kind of exposed how much of a, almost a crutch that our, our quote unquote Sunday morning experience had become. So our church, you know, did a pretty good job of, you know, replicating our, our Sunday morning services online. Um, but 
we came out ironically at the end of the pandemic as, as you know, well, as I think we did at, you know, giving people the same Sunday morning experience, we came out with a lot fewer people coming to church on Sundays. And I think it just goes to show, and I, and a lot of churches had that same exact problem. They were immediately scrambling to, to reproduce their Sunday morning, quote unquote, experience, worship experience online. And churches across the world were struggling to hold on to their people Like people were leaving left and right. And I think it's, it's goes to show that like, it's a perfect example of how we prioritize programming over relationships. And don't get me wrong. I think the Sunday morning worship service is important. Like worshiping God with excellence is important. Creating and facilitating a welcoming environment for guests is important but we made that the priority. And when we couldn't do that anymore, we immediately tried to make it a priority again, when really we should have been investing in, you know, relationships that we have with people. I'm saying we, you know, church worldwide, it's just a trend. I noticed the, the mm-hmm. mad scramble to keep doing what we've been doing when I think God was giving us an opportunity to deepen relationships and show care for people in a lot more personal ways. So for example, we, we took a week as a staff, you were there for this, and we, we just called up people in our congregation, and primarily people who have been you know stuck at home, older people. And I said to myself, when I hung up the phone, it's not something I like doing, I don't like cold calling, but I did it and I said to myself, like that was the best two hours of ministry I've done since this pandemic started just talking and connecting with people. Yeah. And I think, I think churches have an opportunity to kind of revitalize that aspect of ministry, you know, not totally forsake the Sunday morning worship, because I do think that's important, but I think we've, as a, as a church over the years, we've kind of gotten away from the relational aspect of what the church needs to be and and kind of made it into something that is a product that we're selling you know yeah yeah it's it's interesting because there can be things that like are not wrong inherently but if there's like the wrong motive or just a slightly a, a priority that is just a little bit out of alignment um and even if you use like alignment as an illustration, if, if one of your wheels on your vehicle is just a little bit out of alignment, like um, it can, it can disrupt the entire thing. So like, uh, I think all of those things, there, there are a lot of things about our worship services, like you're saying that are not inherently wrong, but if, if the focus begins to get on performance or on the personality of the preacher or um, on whether they make decisions that meet your needs or, or not like, and, and during the pandemic, your need being, uh, making everyone wear a mask or not making it, you know, if, if you can walk away from the community of believers that you've been with for a while, um, over something like that, it might be indicative that like, maybe something wasn't quite right, you know, like, um, I, I don't know, as you were talking, that's sort of, you weren't saying that exactly, but some of what, what I heard you saying is COVID revealed and disrupted some of our uh, mis or 
like wrongly ordered priorities. Um, and that wasn't necessarily a bad thing. Like it probably should have happened. Right. What are some things like, and maybe a lot of them have already been revitalized or, or not, you know, are back up and going for a lot of churches, but what are some things like, um, we, we definitely shouldn't scrap that. Like, um, that, that was disrupted by COVID, but moving forward, we need to revitalize it and, um, needs to be part of our, you know, this, this, the community, the things we do together as a community. Well, I think, um, I mean, personally, our, at our church, I'm speaking with specifically, speaking about specifically is our, uh, small group communities, it seemed like we really emphasize those. And aside from your Sunday morning experience, like I would argue that that community is maybe even more important than your, your Sunday morning worship service, because that's where you really connect on a spiritual personal level with other believers. And you can truly, I mean, I enjoyed our small group because that was the one time a week where I didn't have to be Pastor Matt, I could, I could be myself and can't imagine what that's like for, for people who, you know, just need a place to be. And I think the pandemic forced churches, even though I don't know if we should have been forced, but they forced churches to kind of explore that small group ministry model a little bit more deeply and maybe invest more time and resources into it. We were fortunate enough to have, you know, that, system already in place thanks to you of course um that we we were able to adapt really well but i think i saw a lot of of churches kind of shift toward that model and i think it was a really good thing um another thing is again i i don't put a lot of stock into you know flashy technology but churches were kind of forced to modernize a little bit and that's not necessarily a bad thing like i think churches had a kind of were forced to update their, you know, technology, their relationship with their community, their outreach strategies, and and kind of do what they needed to do to function through the pandemic. And there were some good things that came out of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I sometimes think of Paul talks about being all things to all people and, and I don't want to totally just proof text rip that out of context, but I sort of have the opinion that if Paul had an iPhone today, he'd probably, he'd probably leverage the medium to, to share the gospel. Would it, right. would he think it's the most effective medium? Um, would it be his preferred medium? I, I, it's not my preferred medium. Um, but is it, is it an avenue, um, that we could use? And some of them are e- like easy wins. Like there are just things through social media that like, why not use this medium? But yeah, I think the thing about technology for me in the church, my, I'm of the opinion that like, yeah, it doesn't need to be about the flashiness, but at the same time, like the rest of the world is moving, like technology is moving forward, like it or not, it's just reality. And you're only going to become more and more obsolete if you don't like, you know, keep some sort of pace. But yeah, the cool thing about it was there are churches that didn't have a website or never live streamed before. Um, and they would just do, you know, the pastors just used their phone and did like a Facebook live thing. And all of a sudden um, they have an internet presence and there are people finding them that never, never would have before. And, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, yeah. 
But so moving forward, what are some opportunities? Like as you look at the, you know, sort of the horizon going forward and you're just sort of to evaluate or assess, assess, and obviously this is sort of our opinion, but like, what are some opportunities you're like, man, this, at this time uh, in, in Christian history, we have these opportunities that are really unique to, to what we've gone through. So <laughs> I was listening to um, a podcast. It was a, a football, like sports podcast. And the guys that host it aren't, aren't Christians. This was a while ago. And it was like mid pandemic lockdowns across the country. People hadn't been able to go out, you know, and, and hang out and be with their friends and family for a long, long time. And these guys, like you could just tell they were super depressed and they're just kind of commiserating uh, in between their, you know, football sports talk. <laughs> and um, none of them are Christians. A couple of, two of them are flat out atheists. Um, and they, and they thought they were just talking about how they were thinking like this pandemic has done nothing for me, but like make me sit and think about my own mortality. Like all wow. I've had time to do, all I've had, all I've wow. been doing is sitting at home and just thinking about my own mortality and listening to that. I was like, that is the most depressing thing I think I've heard in a really long time of all the depressing things of 2020, like there is someone who out there who does not have any thing to cling to. And that was just kind of a, a small example of just like the state of people's hearts. Like the last year, it brought out some really deep spiritual needs that I think the church is in a really good position to meet. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Um, we have a tremendous opportunity opportunity to be salt and light um, and to bear witness to resurrection hope. Um, I mean, people might like, I also think it's that that involves the church turning its attention to justice issues and, you know, call me a woke millennial. I don't really care. I think, I think the church part of being kingdom minded is addressing and taking action when we can in ways that we can um, about world problems like the coronavirus and like we can minister to people physically, spiritually, financially. And I think over the last year, I've seen a lot of churches back away from that, um, but a lot of churches embrace that and you know, it was encouraging to see. Yeah, I, I, it grieves me the sort of divide between people who advocate justice issues and um, just the talking about wokeness and things as a pejorative. So I was listening to this, this uh, sermon and um, the guy talked about this emperor, uh, or I think he was an emperor. Um, yeah, he was a, a Roman Roman emperor. And, um, he almost became a Christian. This is a very, I need to actually study the history of this more specifically. This is a very like truncated story. Of this but it's Julius, the apostate, it's called the apostate because he almost like he, he became interested in Christianity, but then, um, ended up like kind of denying it. But one of the things he observed the Christians and he observed that like, they loved people, even if they weren't part of 
the their group you know even if they weren't christians they loved people and they would risk their own health when there were like different plagues or sicknesses that were um impacting communities and and cities and stuff and christians would go out at the risk of their own health and care for the sick and uh they they cared for the poor and um so this emperor sent a bunch of money and food and all this stuff to governors uh, his argument was they're just doing this. It's a sinister trick to get people to join their ranks. They're basically trying to like buy them uh, to, to join their movement. And he says to compete with the Christians, he basically instituted the first form of like uh, social um, welfare, <laughs> like yeah. sent governors money and food and all these things and told them to, to give it to people. And um, well, apparently all the governors were super greedy um, and, uh, well, it never made it to the people, you know, probably, probably made it to some vacation home in the Mediterranean or something. Uh, but it's just so interesting. You look at our historical roots and like welfare programs didn't start with the government. Um, we actually, uh, it's our birthright to care for people and to care for their poor and care for their needs and, and to make a difference in the world. And to care about people's, you know, physical felt needs. But, anyways, that's a different, uh, that's a different topic that's, altogether as I mean, well. There's a, there's a reason a lot of hospitals are named after like saints, like <laughs> healthcare and, you know, education. I mean, universities like those were birthed from the church. Um, we can't, we can't, you know, separate ourselves from that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's good stuff. Um, each of these topics could probably be a, a an episode in its own. Um, so uh, there's this thing, and maybe some people who like just go to church have heard too, but definitely like pastors in the world of ministry, this virtual church or hybrid church term. Um, so like, isn't virtual church and virtual community like an oxymoron? I mean church and community is about the gathered community, about people gathered together. What are the pros and cons of, um, well, I guess, yeah. H- how is virtual church community and what are the pros or cons of that? So I think, I think virtual church sounds weird to even say that. Um, I think it was good. It, it met a need during the pandemic and a lot of people to connect with their church, their, you know, their pastor uh, on some level and allow them to worship at home with their family um, on Sunday mornings. But, you know, the reality is that there's no replacing actual Christian community. And, you know, I've heard, I've heard Hebrews 10, 25 a lot over the past year, you know, don't forsake the assembly. Um, I won't even get into how that's not really what that verse means, but um, there are Christians who have almost bullied churches and other Christians who have chosen to worship, you know, through virtual means to avoid getting themselves or their loved ones sick. And, you know, it, it kind of exposed this like almost spiritual laziness in people because you're implying that your Sunday morning worship experience was the only time where you were 
with other Christians. The only time that you actually had Christian community. Um, and there is truth, you know, to that statement. Don't forsake the assembly. Don't forsake community with other believers. But there was nothing stopping us from doing that during COVID. It didn't have to take the form of a, you know, a Sunday morning worship gathering. There's nothing in the Bible that says we need to, you know, gather together in that format. You know, the early church didn't gather together in that format. You know, there are Christians in China who gather together underground. And if they had the big blowout worship rallies like we do on Sunday mornings, they'd all be arrested. You know, those people aren't being disobedient. Those people are not forsaking the gathering, the assembly of the saints. You know, and so that kind of rhetoric kind of was going around and it was really frustrating for me to hear because it's, it's definitely a false dichotomy because nothing was stopping for, you know, FaceTime or just in small groups with people that we were comfortable being around. We knew, we knew, you know, weren't, weren't sick. There was nothing stopping us from, from feeding ourselves quote unquote spiritually when we couldn't actually be physically in a worship service on Sunday morning. And so I think this, you know, virtual church online format kind of exposed, you know, that there were a lot of people who weren't, who were relying too much on the Sunday morning experience to be their, their one dose of Christian community for the week. When in reality, you know, the, the worship service might've been taken away, but there are other actions you know, that could have been taken. There are other, there are people that, you know, you could have reached out to and met. There was nothing stopping you from getting that Christian community as well as, you know, attending online services, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think part of the argument that I, that I don't disagree with, with like virtual church is that kind of what we said earlier, it's a medium that we can leverage and, we should engage it. And um, there's, there's opportunity, I think, there. However, I think even secular psychology, sociology would emphasize that there is not a replacement for like face-to-face human interaction. And so it's not meant to be sort of a substitute for having actual relationships with other believers and um it's really important but it it could be like a a new way like a sort of a new front door to engage people um and a new a new way for people who aren't sure about this church thing to dip their toes in the water um and and honestly i kind of i think sometimes people sometimes christians can be expect a little much out of people who, who are not familiar with the church and like, they should just come, they should just, you know, do this and do that the way they think they should just do it. But I recently visited a church cause I haven't started at my new role yet. And Emily was gone for the weekend. It was just me and the two kids. And, um, there's just some, I won't go into detail fully, but there's just so much about the morning that was an uncomfortable, uh, stressful, frustrating experience. And, um, very few people, interacted with me except for like volunteers who like needed to check my kid in or who held the door open and part is okay. I didn't really want to talk to anyone myself either. 
Um, but, but my point is, is like that whole experience, especially if you've never gone to a church, um, it's a pretty, you know, it's a pretty big step, a pretty foreign environment if you, if you're not used to it and maybe virtual mediums will be a way for them to sort of dip their toe in the water, at least get acquainted with some of the, um, you know, some of what it, what it, what it is if they were to attend. Right. But yeah, it, it shouldn't be a replacement for um, Christian community. So <laughs> this, the next question I want to ask, this could be an entire podcast and actually there probably are podcasts devoted to this um, completely. But one of the interesting things uh, I noticed early on in the pandemic was a lot of end times rhetoric and predictions. Uh, why do you think COVID sort of triggered these this uh, heightened level of end times rhetoric? Um, and one of the things I, I noticed too is some of the predictions and accusations and even prophetic claims were really bizarre. Uh, and in my humble opinion, some of them were completely irresponsible in terms of biblical interpretation, biblical theology. I could be wrong. I am not an expert on eschatology or the, the you know prophecy or revelation. I'm not an expert on it. I don't but, know if you need to be um, an expert to realize that some of those, those things <laughs> yeah. came across were ridiculous. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's probably true. Um, but yeah, why why do you think COVID triggered uh, in times rhetoric, um, and how do you? Uh, how do you discern the credibility of end times claims or what sort of guardrails would you suggest to other people? So they not get caught up in, there's not really a nice way to put it, wild conspiracies. So why did COVID trigger it? And then how do we know when uh, we should maybe run (laughs) the other way? Yeah. I mean, on some, on some level, I get why people went there in their minds. Like, I think it's possible to have a healthy awareness that the kingdom is coming, that Jesus is coming back, that we don't know the day or time that there will be, you know, judgment. Um, There are even times during the last year where I was asking myself, like, is this pandemic, you know, God's wrath? Like, is this a, you know, is this, you know, an outpouring of judgment on the world? Like we're talking about an event that literally brought, the world to its knees, like something that we've never seen before. At least our generation of people has never seen before a worldwide um, pandemic. So it's not hard to go there in your mind and, you know, to the end times. And I, I would say it even makes sense to kind of have those things on your mind. But the problem was that the end times theology, I say that with air quotes again, um, it got mixed in with these political views and ridiculous conspiracy theories like you know masks are the mark of the beast oh wait no now vaccines are the mark of the beast and you know the the who is the one world government that's predicted by you know revelation and they're going to bring in you know the the you know armageddon uh the church being churches being closed down because of gathering restrictions is you know church persecution that's signaling the end times like all kinds of insane theories that just didn't have any basis in reality. And so I think the problem isn't people anticipating or having the return of Jesus on their minds, because I think eschatology is something that is important to have an understanding of. But the problem is that 
when your theology of the kingdom gets corrupted by politics or conspiracy theories or just downright false information, that's a problem. And I think that's the, the main point of discernment that we can have. Um, you know, the Bible commands God's people to be ready for the return of Jesus and allow the culture of his kingdom to be built in their hearts and their minds. And I think that's a, a biblical understanding of the kingdom and the implications it has for Christian life. And I think a, a theory or a claim that is clearly from someone who's not interested in building kingdom culture in God's people, um, who is just capitalizing on fear or trying to espouse their political agenda or just, you know, distributing downright false, easily provable false information. Like those are just things that we need to avoid. Um, we need to use scripture responsibly. Like you said, like those theories are just irresponsible uses and interpretations of the Bible. Um, because, and the truth is we don't know the day or time. Jesus was very clear, like only the father knows and it's okay to have the return of Christ on our minds. Like as a Christian, I, I don't think we can go a day in our lives without, you know, thinking about, you know, kingdom living. What is the culture of the kingdom? How does it affect my day to day life? But we're also called to love God with our minds <laughs> and falling victim and, you know, being disillusioned by just wild irresponsible conspiracy theories and um, accusations and calling people the antichrist because they have a different political view than you or whatever, what have you, that's not loving God with your mind. And I just think that's, that's one of the, one of the ways that we can love God with our minds is to be very discerning in the yeah. things that we share the things that we you know propagate on our social media pages in person um yeah i think god's word is clear on one thing and that one thing is that we don't know <laughs> yeah so. yeah i think two two and you could you could um push back or add to these but two really important sort of guardrails for me on whether like on my discerning someone's take on in times and in, in revelation interpretation and things. Um, one is, uh, is this a very myopic, narrow-minded um, sort of U.S. or Western centric view? And what I mean by that is, so um, is this shaped by my first world uh, luxury and privileges? Um, and would someone from uh, a developing world nation feel the same? Okay. So in other words, um, sometimes something, you know, bad or, or whatever happens here in the U S and it's like, Oh no, it's the end times. Like, it's like, well, that happens every day in other uh, developing world nations. So has it been the end times for them for forever? Like it, it, if it's, it needs to transcend, if it, for it to be true, it needs to transcend 
our time and place and culture. Um, it, it needs to be something that impacts, uh, which I guess the pandemic did, but some of the specifics that people um, honed in on were, were like, well, that really, that really only pertains to the U.S. So I don't think that's, you know. Right. Um, yeah. And that's why I said it, it makes sense that people will go there in their minds. Like, is this, is this something, is this the end of the world? Like, is this the return of Christ? Is this signaling something that's greater? Um, take a step back and contextualize a little bit. And yeah, yeah. You know, there was, there was a time, um, you know, in the, during the, the Trump presidency where he enacted some like pro-Israel legislation and there were Christians who were saying like, okay, that's the revelation, that's, that's revelations, you know, prediction, you know, the new Israel, like um, there was a lot of, a lot of kind of apocalyptic and, you know, Armageddon theories based on that. And I was just thinking the entire time, like, this has been an, an issue that's been going on since the forties. And just because America recognizes Israel as a sovereign country or, you know, what have you, like, was that what God was waiting for? Just America to, to pull the plug? <laughs> you know, it just doesn't, it just doesn't make any sense when you take a step back and think about it. Um, yeah. Just on a, a global perspective. Yeah. My other sort of guiding principle is just related to the book of revelation itself. Like it needs to have made sense on some level. I think scripture can have layers of meaning and it's living and active, but revelation was meant, written to encourage believers who are undergoing persecution so if the interpretations we're drawing away would have meant absolutely nothing to persecuted Christians in the first century, then we've probably, well, let me, let me just say, we maybe need to reconsider our starting point and begin there. Like, what did this mean to John's original audience? Um, and if whatever we've come to believe it means would have absolutely like complete completely no value or worth to them then like we might be barking at the wrong tree but okay. i don't know that's those are just two little little principles um well okay the third the third one that you'd kind of address is we don't know the third is when someone has a very like has done some sort of like you know numerical you know uh crack some sort of numerical co code in the scriptures and has an exact date and time um yeah. if anyone claims to have that i run the other way as fast as i can yeah. um, uh so the last year provided ample opportunities for people to allow differing opinions to divide them you know deadly virus or hoax mask or no mask vaccine or no vaccine uh the issues could go on um if you had racial tension and the political divide i mean it just there's just there's so many opportunities for division to have, you know, for us even personally to have a divide within our own families. Like there was just a plethora of issues. Do you have any pastoral? Cause uh, you are a gentleman and a scholar, as I said at the beginning, but you do have a pastor's, a pastor's heart as well. Do you have any pastoral advice uh, for those who may have family members or friends or coworkers or fellow Christians with whom they sharply disagree how can we if we're a jesus follower how can we guard against bitterness and what should we do to become aware um uh what should we do if we become aware that we are 
bitter and resentful. Right. Um, I, I just think the obvious answer is the best answer in this situation. It's just to reconcile. Um, mm. Scripture is pretty clear that, you know, people aren't the enemy. Satan is the enemy um, yeah. and he seeks to divide. And when he allows our differences and opinion to infiltrate our churches, our relationships with our you know, fellow believers and our pastors, that's when Satan does his most destructive work. And I think the best thing we can do to defend against that, to guard against that, to battle back against that is to just reconcile. And that doesn't mean convincing someone that we're right or accepting that mm. they're right and, you know, feeling like we lost. Like, you know, when you reconcile a debt, the balance is zero. Um, no one wins, no one loses. Yeah, that's um, good. And I just think that that's, that's the attitude that Christians need to have with differing opinions. Um, if you know, if we're talking about sin, then that's a different situation. Like it's up to the, the church, the body of believers to correct that lovingly. Um, but if we're just talking about different opinions, different preferences, just, just matters of, I think this way and you think differently, and it's not a biblical or a sin issue. I think it's our duty to do what we can to reconcile. And um, I just think that's the best, the best defense against Satan's attacks on the church. So it gets a little gray. Um, I'm going to throw another question at you, but what if I, like Matt, what if I believe it is a sin issue? Um, Like, you know, let's say I'm deeply convicted that that forsake, not the meeting of yourselves together, the gathering yourselves together means like we should not, you know, regardless of any government mandate, any global pandemic, we should not, stop meeting in person and those that do are sinning. And so I am convinced in my own heart and mind that um, it is a sin issue. So now I have the liberty. um, I'm justified now to be right and to tell everyone else disagree with me that they're wrong. Right. Um, I mean, with, with that, that's a good caveat to the question. And, you know, there will be instances where, there are disagreements over what's a sin, you know, what's not, what's just a matter of preference and what's actually like going against scripture. Um, you know, I think, you know, the, the use of alcohol, women in ministry, things like that, where they're, they're very deep seated convictions and people dig in quite a bit um, on that debate. And even then, I think that there is room and freedom that we have to have discussions and talk rather than retreat to our individual trenches and you know lob artillery shells at people um, yeah, that's good to use the the war metaphor i guess um it doesn't you can have differences in theological opinion and, and not see people still not see people as the enemy you know like yeah. the bible says like that that satan is the enemy and our goal is not to trump the opinion of another person and beat them into submission with our correctness. You know, our, our goal is to dialogue and, and fight against the division that Satan is trying to cause and try to come to a point of, if not complete reconciliation, you know, 
agreement to love one another anyway. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, points of Christian theology that, you know, they came about due to people disagreeing with one another, you know, the, the divinity and humanity of Jesus, that Christian doctrine was solidified because back in the day, there were people who either didn't believe Jesus was a man, uh, a human being, or, and didn't, or didn't believe that Jesus was actually divine. And, and the church had to discuss and meet and talk and solidify that doctrine. Yeah. And we've kind of just lost the ability to do that in today's church, especially in today's society where, where everyone has an opinion and everyone has a forum to express that opinion. I think we need to get back to actual dialogue rather than rather than seeing other people as the enemy yeah and 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 maybe dialogue too that um even if i am 110 percent convinced i am right like there's no amount of dialogue that's going to change my mind i still can go into it with the desire to understand you know, to find some way to identify with the perspective, to find some way to say, okay, that's like, uh, that's the thing they value, or that's the thing, that's where they're coming from. And I can identify with that. And yeah. um, we can have meaningful dialogue, even if I'm still convinced I'm right, I can still go in with a posture of humility that seeks to learn. Right. Um, and then the other thing, we've talked about this a lot over the last year, but um the fruit of the spirit is a really good measure to reflect on and sort of do some introspection on whether you might be disagreeing poorly. So when we talking about engaging lovingly with differing theological opinions, like this is just an example. Like I went to, to grace college, which is a, you know, pretty Calvinist leaning with a lot of the professors. And I am definitely not, Calvinist, but I could go into classes with professors who I staunchly disagree with on different matters. And I actually came to appreciate, you know, the Calvinist perspective a lot more. Like I really admire their, their love of God's sovereignty, their love of scriptures and their devotion to like right teaching and, and church care for believers. Like I, I, I really, grew to appreciate those aspects of um, their, those emphases that, that they had. Um, but I, and I didn't, I didn't walk into class, like looking to get into a debate or make a stink. I wasn't trying to bring down the seminary, you know, from within with my differing theological opinions. Like I could learn and dialogue and, um, and be with people who I'm convinced are brothers and sisters in Christ, even though we disagree on something. And yeah. some of these things that we disagree on are, are pretty major theological differences. So, yeah, yeah, that's good. I try to have, I don't do it perfectly, but I try to have just begin with the belief that like I can learn something from anybody um, because like I said, I don't do that perfectly um, because I'm human. And here's, here's why I think, when we don't do that, it's, it's usually because there's some sort of pride present. Yeah. And, uh, and I definitely sometimes have pride present, but I think a good rule of thumb is to just try to have the humility to say, I could learn something 
um, from, from even people I disagree with. So yeah, Matt, where could people connect with you if they wanted to? I know you have a blog, but I don't actually know your, um, like the, the address. Oh, the, the address. Yeah. It's, um, it's kingdom-ethos.com. So the word kingdom dash and then ethos, E-T-H-O-S.com. That's, that's where I have, uh, I have a blog where I just write about whatever comes to mind. Um, I have a couple series going that I'm juggling. It's really been kind of a pain in the butt <laughs> to <laughs> juggle multiple, you know, blog series at one time, but it's, you know, I really like to write and it just kind of scratches the theological itch sometimes that I, that I get. Um, so you can follow me there. Um, and there's a, a contact page on that website where you can email me if you have any you know, questions or want to connect. Yeah. Um, well, so. Um, have there been any like resources for local church ministry in a post pandemic world that you've come across and would recommend? Um, honestly, not necessarily. I, I think we're a little too close to the, the subject. <laughs> to, like I, I, I feel like we, there were, we were weeks into this pandemic and there were blog posts and even books where people were just like, these are five things you need to do <laughs> your church successful during the COVID pandemic. And I'm just like, are you kidding me? No one knows what they're doing right now. Um, <laughs> so I, I don't really know if I have much for you in that, in that regard, but. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. I'll be honest. I haven't read a whole lot either. So early on, I was sort of like, like you, I'm like, I don't know if they're going to be able to add much of value or even much that will be relevant five months from now. Cause we were like, like literally like, like within a, like last summer, like summer 2020, there were books coming out about post pandemic. Yeah. I'm like, we're not post yet. Like yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're still um, in the middle of this thing. And like, even yeah, right now, we're not necessarily out of the woods. Like, <laughs> yeah, there are some, uh, some videos and little like seminar things I'm going to, probably look into and watch about like hybrid church or virtual church, but um, just a, as sort of a, a supplemental ministry or just a way to in, engage that platform. But yeah, um, I have, there, I, I mean, there will be some good stuff I'm sure coming out. Like this yeah. will be subject of a lot of, you know, ministry strategy books and dissertations and projects, <laughs> Barna surveys and yeah. looking forward to it. So, yeah. Yeah. So um, before we wrap up, now we'll, now is just as good a time as any. Um, I want to share with any listeners, any faithful listeners, that uh, Theologizing Life will be taking a new direction starting in September, with the release of September's episode. Uh, moving forward, uh, Theologizing Life will be co-hosted by me and the one and only Matt Tracy. Hey, oh. So there, Theologizing Life, we will um, talk about theological topics and Matt will bring his uh, doctoral student or at least pre-doctoral student mind to the conversation and you really um, are selling me really high here so yeah <laughs> yeah it's probably something I said in the last hour and a half that people are like that is not biblical Matt so <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if any great seminary professors listen to my podcast so you, you probably won't have any professors coming after you so um, <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, we'll, we will, um, address different various topics and talk about sort of like a biblical theological, um, approach or just sort of 
even just how we're processing through that topic. And then, um, and part of this, so we'll be moving away from the monthly guest, but there's still maybe times where I connect with someone and invite them on the show and we talk about a, a topic and there may be times where Matt uh, has a friend or a connection um, that he invites on the show and there'll be a guest. It's just um, the podcast moving forward won't be dependent on uh, guests each episode. Um, it will be dependent on Matt's scholarship. No. Again, <laughs> stop, stop selling me that highs. <laughs> Matt, this is going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. So anyways, um, yeah, look look for that coming out September, uh, Theologizing Life, co-hosted by uh, Anthony Cottrell and Matt Tracy. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks for letting me talk at you. Yeah. Remember, uh, if you like, share, um, subscribe, it helps expand our listener base. Thanks for listening. Until next time.